Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Life is like a box of chocolate. This thing was forever ago, this movie, and we all still know it. One less popular but still great quote from Forrest was, Bubba was my best good friend. And even I know that ain't something you can find just around a corner. I love that. I think that's such a sweet sentiment. It fits perfectly well with what we've been talking about for the whole of this series. It's just not the one that I, I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is, is stupid is as stupid does. And my dad, this is one of his favorites. It's become one of my favorites. I absolutely love this idea. And he would regularly say this to me as an encouragement. That would, It really was. No, seriously, it was an encouragement because there are no stupid people. Right? Everybody will do stupid things, and when you stop doing stupid things, you're no longer stupid, which is so encouraging. Like, you can immediately stop being stupid, which is just great. And so, like, I, I really do. Uh, I, I love this idea because, you know, I, I kind of want the ability to stop being an idiot when the thought comes to me that you're being an idiot. So, at the, so this is like, you know, it's kind of still for me, uh, it's the end of the, the first month of the year, and I would love to just make a resolution to be less stupid this year, you know, which I feel like we should probably, uh, lots of folks could make that resolution, and uh, I think it would make so many things, because sadly, I still find myself doing stupid things. In fact, things that I know are things I don't really want for myself. You know, I, this is, it's the, again, the beginning of the year, I get a little bit kind of introspective, usually around this time of the year, I start kind of looking at my life and analyzing it, and, and I've also been talking to a whole bunch of you uh, over the last few months about, you know, your relationships and your connections and, and, and how things, you know, how you're doing as far as like your, you know, your, uh, you know, your broader social network. And I started to realize that I, like many of you, I haven't invested in deep, friendships as much as I ought to. I mean, I want to. I have it as a life goal. And yet, when I actually look at what I'm doing, it doesn't happen as often as it ought to. Because stupid is as stupid does. Why am I still making those same kinds of mistakes? And of course, I know why, because something always gets in the way. But isn't that the point? Something will always get in the way and pull us away from doing the very things that we know we ought to. 
I mean, most of us know that we want and that we need deeper spiritual relationships. We know that. Research, of course, we talked about it a few weeks ago, uh, but uh, each week I'm going to pull up a couple more. You can find just so many examples right now. It's, it's all over uh, the research and the literature uh, they, that support this idea of a loneliness epidemic. But it's not just in America. Loneliness is reaching epidemic levels in much of the developed world. They say that 41% of Britons say that their pet is their main source of company. Their pet. I mean, I love pets, all right? I mean, that's fit. I, I, it's great to be close, but come on, your main source, 41% are connected best to their dog? Because you know it's not cats. It's <laughs> like, I mean, I love it, but it, it, we need more. A government study in Japan found that more than half a million people spent at least six months at home with no outside contact. Half a million. Oh, my goodness. 13% in the U.S. said that there were zero people who knew them well. The isolating effect of not being known by anyone, not a friend, not family, not a coworker. There was a 25-year span that we have seen the average American's social network shrink by one-third when it's defined by the number of close confidants we have. So it is becoming a more acute problem for us. Now, even before this loneliness epidemic was kind of in the headline news, and we sort of already knew what we wanted. Most of us, with even just a little bit of introspection, know. And yet, rarely do we change the circumstances. It's weirdly, it's, it's kind of weird, actually, that we, we really do know uh, what we would need to do to cultivate these kinds of relationships. We already know it. Maybe a little bit of coaching could help and a little bit of encouragement here and there, but the, the truth of the matter is it wouldn't take you very long to figure out how to do this. And so what I'm, I'm talking about here this morning really is stuff that we, we, we really do sort of already get. But what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm gonna, we're going to take a look at James chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 14. And what I'm going to try to do is remind us of the stuff that we already know, but sometimes neglect. And I want to encourage us, even cajole us, into doing what we know we ought to do. Now, James was written by the brother of Jesus, like the half-brother. of he, he was one of the children of Mary and Joseph after Mary had Jesus. And uh, I know for some of you, you're like, that's heretical. You can't say that. That's not how I was raised. But anyway, the Bible seems to indicate that, in fact, Jesus did have half-brothers and sisters. And uh, James was one of them. And, of course, he wrote this letter as a very strong encouragement to live the way we ought to live. And so we're in James chapter 2, verse 14. He starts off with, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what do you do if your brother or sister lacks some basic needs? Well, what do you do? Well, you, you help them. That's it. Nice and straightforward. They lack a need. You help them. Now, the word he uses here for brothers and sisters, I've mentioned it before, but it's the word adelphoi. And it really does mean siblings. It's actually a little cognate word. It, it means from the same womb. All right, so if you're from the same womb, you're brothers and sisters, except, of course, that's not how it was being used by James or, in fact, how it's used throughout Greek literature during this time because the, the idea is that James is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians, and he calls them siblings. He calls them brothers and sisters, the Adelphoi. And this is a very maternal picture of God because there's this, this sort of an idea that somehow, mysteriously and beautifully, we are each birthed out of the womb of God through Christ. And as that new birth takes place, we're being birthed into this new family, our Adelphoi, the brothers and sisters. And if someone needs food or clothing and we don't help them, what good is it? I mean, what good is it? None. No good. There's no benefit to it. Recently, uh, we had a neighbor whose house experienced a fairly significant fire. And, uh, you know, we kind of ran over, and, and it was neat to watch how the neighborhood uh, decided to help out. And, like, go, like, you know, my wife was there, and, you know, we, we, the, the church pledged some, you know, some support, and there was a GoFundMe page set up by someone else in town, and they quickly raised some money to help her, you know, buy clothes and food because she literally had none anymore. Like, that was just what she had on her back when she ran out of the house. And so we're all there, and we're kind of connecting, and it was beautiful to see how a little community can come together and help someone, help a neighbor. You know, with all the, the lousy news on TV, you know, there's many of these, these sweet moments still. You know, when we see the needs around us, we ought to help. It's pretty straightforward. And if we don't, James goes on to say, then our faith is dead. He takes this idea and he says, listen, your faith, your beliefs, without the requisite actions, is dead. It's useless. Actually, maybe it's worse than useless because it, in the example he gives, the guy turns around and he says, go, keep warm and well fed. That's like pouring salt in the wound. You know, that's even worse than, than, than saying nothing at all. I mean, you literally now recognize the need and you're encouraging them to go and do the thing that they actually can't do, that they need your help in doing. You know, too often, Christians, we like to talk about our theology, and that's great. I love talking theology. We like to read and study our Bibles, and that's fantastic. I encourage you guys, read and study your Bibles. Definitely. We watch sermons from around the world, the world's greatest communicators. We can watch sermons and we can listen to podcasts, and through all of this, we develop this thing we sort of esoterically call our faith. You know, our faith, it's some sort of collection of beliefs and doctrines and usually some type of, you know, behavioral, personal behavioral restrictions that we put on ourselves. And, and we group this all together and we, we defend our faith 
against the onslaught of culture or other people. And so we talk about this, you know, we have this thing, and it's, it's our faith. And James comes along and he says, your faith is meaningless if, in fact, it doesn't result in real and tangible actions that benefit the people around you. Your faith is like a, it's like a stinking corpse you're dragging around. It's dead. If you're not willing to take actions that benefit the people around you, especially your Adelphoi. James gives us two case studies to drive this point home. He speaks of Abraham and Rahab. Look at uh, verse 20, James 2, verse 20. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He starts his section and he says, you foolish person. That's his version of stupid is as stupid does. He's saying, you don't get it. How could you not see it? Well, I'll give you an example. Here, here we go. Rahab, a non-Jewish prostitute living in a pagan city. So you got a pagan woman living in a city that's about to be conquered by the Israelites in their conquest of the land of Canaan. So what does she do? Well, in order to do the right thing, she's got to make certain she outsmarts the, the, the leaders of Jericho. She saves the spies who were sent to her, sends them off in a different direction. She becomes a follower of God. So she takes these enormous risks. And because of it, because of these incredibly brave actions, she saves herself and her family. Not only that, she actually later, we find out that she is one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus, our Savior. So she is now folded into the family of God because of her courage. And she becomes an instrumental part in the lineage of Jesus. So she, here is this ultimate outsider who becomes the ultimate insider. Then we have Abraham. Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son. Abraham obeyed. Took him to the mountain that was told to him to go to and he binds the boy's hands. He lays them on the altar and he lifts the knife, incredibly. And we're reading the story along and we can't even fathom what is happening because we already know that God forbids human sacrifice and what in the world is he doing? And of course, God intervenes. He says, stop, don't touch a hair on that boy's head. Don't harm him. But in that moment, we got to see how far Abraham was willing to go. What he was willing to do. But beyond that, we also learn something in this sort of mysterious exchange that wouldn't be made clear for generations. And, uh, I had uh, already kind of shared a couple weeks ago a whole long litany of these kinds of statistics, and I picked up just a few more to remind us 
this, uh, this week. Uh, they say that uh, it's not just in America. It's actually uh, an epidemic that's happening throughout the developed world. So 41% of Britons say that their pet is their main source of company. 41%. That's your main... I mean, that's great. I love pets. Your main source of company? A dog? Because you know it can't be a cat. Um, <laughs> they said a government study in Japan found that more than half a million people, think of that number, right? Half a million spent at least six months at home. At home. Without an interpersonal connection. No outside contact. Six months? No one checking up? No one to see how things are going? No one else to just be with? 13% in the U.S. said that there were zero people who knew them well. Zero. Not a one. Not family, not friends. In a 25-year period, the average American social network shrank by one-third. So if it feels like it's getting more acute, it is. That's, th those are defined as your close confidants. So even before this loneliness epidemic was in the headlines all the time, we all sort of already knew that we wanted and in fact we needed more spiritual friendships. And yet many of us do little to change our circumstances. Which is so weird, because we actually pretty much already know what we would need to do. You know, there are some, some things that we could, you know, kind of learn and, and benefit, a little coaching along the way to make our relationships deeper and better and more effective and all that, but we mostly already know what to do. So what I'm going to do today is talk to you from a passage in the scripture found in James chapter 2. It's in verse 14. And I want to remind us of some stuff that we already know. Nothing new here. And then I'm going to cajole us, I hope, into actually doing what we know we ought to do. And there's really no better place to find this sort of encouragement than in the book of James. James is actually a brother of Jesus and not like a spiritual brother, like a legit uh, brother. Uh, Mary and Joseph... Uh, had other kids uh, after Jesus was born. Some of you come from a background, you're like, that is the most heretical thing I have heard you ever say. But uh, it seems that way through the scriptures, uh, at least uh, a good reading of it seems as if uh, this was his actual half-brother uh, through Mary. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, and if, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what do you do if you find a brother or sister who lacks basic needs? Well, you help them. The word here, I'd mentioned it in other places, is adelphoi. It means your siblings. It's actually a, a connected word here, like a cognate, that, that it actually means from the same womb. But James isn't talking 
to just his physical brothers and sisters, right? He's talking to his spiritual family. So it's as if he's saying, listen, these are my siblings. These are my, you know, this is my brother from another mother because this is, in fact, his Adelphoi, his siblings from a different womb. What womb? Well, this is one of those beautifully maternal pictures of God because somehow we are birthed out of the womb of God through Jesus into this new family, and because of that, we're brothers and sisters. We are the Adelphoi. That's who James is talking to here. And if someone needs food or clothing and we don't help them, he says, what good is it? With the implication, of course, being none. None. It's not good at all. We had a neighbor uh, just recently, actually, who's house experienced a pretty significant fire. It was a big scary thing and trucks and all of that. And uh, it was really neat because afterwards you got to see the, the community sort of, you know, come alongside and support her. And so, you know, they, you know, it, we were there and, and then some of the neighbors were there and someone in town uh, who we didn't even know, they started to go fund me and Beacon has, has promised support uh, just to kind of like, you know, raise some money so she could buy clothes and food. Like literally, she, was now, she now had none of those things. Uh, and it was so great to see a little a community like that kind of, you know, gather around and try to help and support someone. You know, you see a need like this and you're like, good, what good? It's good to go and do those things. We see needs around us. We ought to help. And if we don't, James goes on to say, it means that our faith is dead. It's dead. He develops this idea that this faith, these beliefs that we hold so dear, if they don't result in deeds, the faith is useless. Actually, it's worse than, than useless. Because he goes in and he says, what are you going to do? You're going to go tell them, go warm and go keep warm and well fed? That feels worse than saying nothing at all. That's nearly like pouring salt in the wound. Hey, listen, I know you're hurting. Good luck with that. You know, go ahead and keep warm and, and well-fed somehow. Just don't look to me. You know, I think too often, Christians, we talk about our theology. We love theology. You know, we read and we study our Bibles and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic. I think we should do that as, as often as we can. And, you know, we watch sermons from the world's best teachers. We listen to podcasts. We develop what we call, in this sort of, I don't know, esoteric way, we talk about our faith. And we're developing our faith. We've got all these ways to develop our faith. And it's sort of like a collection of beliefs and and some practices, mostly restrictions that we put on ourselves for the, you know, the way we ought to live or something like that. We defend our faith against attack, right? We kind of talk about it in this, in this way. And James says, your faith is meaningless if there are no actions. It's dead. It's like you're dragging around a stinking corpse. If it's not resulting, if your faith is not resulting in real and tangible actions that benefit the people around you, especially your Adelphoi, what good is it? 
and gives us two case studies to drive this point home. Abraham and Rahab. Look at uh, James chapter 2, verse 20. He says, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Jump to verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James starts this little section with, you foolish person, which I really think is his way of saying stupid is as stupid does. He's telling his, his Adelphi, he's like, what are you being a fool for? This is so obvious. All of us should know this. But if you want to learn a little bit about it, he goes, you know, let's think about Rahab. So Rahab was a non-Jewish prostitute. So a pagan woman who, as, was, as far as the Jewish people concerned, as far an outsider as you could get. A sinner, a woman, a pagan, and she was living in the city of Jericho. Ends up she risks everything in order to do what was right. She was able to outsmart the pagan leaders around her. She was showing the courage to send the Jewish spies off to safety. And she became a follower of God. And amazingly, because of her brave actions... She saved herself and her clan, her family. So they all got saved, and then they got folded into the Jewish people. So much so that Rahab shows up as the great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Her courage led to her and her family being folded into the family of God and, and into the lineage of our Savior, the ultimate outsider became the ultimate insider and she risked greatly for it then we get the story of Abraham Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son and he obeyed so he took him up on the mountain that God told him to go to he bound his hands he lifted the knife and of course God said no don't touch a hair on his head. But it did show how far Abraham was willing to go. And in that moment, this act of obedience, he created for us a picture of something deeply mysterious that we wouldn't understand for generations to come. So you're a parent, you're reading this, right? And you're you, 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 there's nothing like this in the, in the rest of the Bible. There's no talk of human sacrifice ever. God hates human sacrifice. He condemns it in other religions. And so you read this and you're like, no, never. And quite honestly, I could never do it. It just, you would, no, absolutely not. And it's true, God doesn't require it. Of course not. But he does do it. 
And that's the part that we find so overwhelming that God himself offered his son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sin. So that, so that we, the outsiders, could be folded into God's love to become part of his family, his Adelphoi. And he was willing to do it at the cost of his deepest love. See, God gave everything for us. No wonder James can start off and say, you foolish person. Don't you see? This is the God we serve. Ironically, of course, we find it easier to help with physical needs rather you know, like food and clothing, then equally important needs like friendship. I mentioned before that it was great watching our neighborhood jump into action to help my neighbor. It was, it was really sweet. But there is a little bit more to that story, which really was saddening to me. Because we're standing out there in front of the house. She had already been moved to safety in another house, and there's a group of neighbors out there, and the and the police and first responders who were, who were there were starting to ask us questions about our neighbor, two houses down from me. And I, we just couldn't come up with anything. We knew nothing. We couldn't come up with her last name. We're, we're trying to Google it to find out what our neighbor's last name was. And I was so sad by this. I was thinking to myself, what is going on? Fortunately, Cheryl, you know, knew her and, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't pull up her last name. I was thinking to myself, you know, she's never been in my house. She lives alone, two houses down. She's never been in our, our backyard for a, a neighborhood party. You know, if it, it, if it wasn't for Cheryl going to the hospital, she would have taken an Uber home from the hospital to where she was staying that night. Imagine that. Mother Teresa, she said, I want you to go and find the poor in your homes. Above all, your love has to start there. I want you to be the good news to those right around you. I want you to be concerned about your next door neighbor. Do you know who your neighbor is? Whatever I want to be taken seriously, you have to quote Mother Teresa. Because, you know, you can't like, disc you can discredit me all you want, but come on, that's Mother Teresa for crying out loud. Any awesome, famous, older nuns you can always quote to great effect. So, in fact, you guys hear that, like, this mother superior in Ireland, she's 98 years old, and she was actually, um, she was on her deathbed, and, and she was surrounded by all of the other nuns, and uh, they were trying to, like, kind of usher her into eternity in some sort of with her, well, her spiritual family, the other, the other nuns. And so they offered her the tall glass of milk, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't even... She wouldn't even take a sip. Like, she just took one sip, and then she turned away, laying in her bed. And, and so one of the, the younger nuns, she took it uh, into the, the milk into the kitchen, and there she remembered that there was this, like, you know, a gift that had been given, a big bottle of Irish whiskey. And so she poured out a bunch of the milk, and she poured in a bunch of the whiskey, and she brought it back over 
to Mother Superior and offered it to her again. And so she took a, she took a sip, and then she took another sip, and then she, took, she was done with half the glass, and now she's starting to kind of sit up in her chair. And before you know it, she finishes the whole glass of milk. And they, they see that she's kind of mustering her strength, and they say, Mother Superior, would you, would you tell us some great, some great wisdom before you die. Share with us something, some secret of life. And, and she musters her strength and she says, never sell that cow. <laughs> True story. It's... James, he says, you're Adelphoi, your brothers and your sisters in Christ. They got to look out for each other. They got to look out for each other. This is why we're facing a loneliness epidemic. People are isolated and in need of deep human care and connection, and we mostly see the need, and we do nothing about it. I mean, not only do we, do we actually not do, like, we don't, we don't take care of their emotional, we're not even taking care of our own relational needs. I wonder if James were writing today, in our culture, where getting adequate food and clothing is a non-issue for the vast majority of us, certainly for almost everyone here in the room. Getting, getting some food and getting some clothing, that's not a big deal. I wonder if he would shift his application in our day and age to our relationships. I wonder if he would say that friendship without sacrifice is dead. I wonder if that would be one of his application points. I wonder if he would tell us, listen, no good comes from seeing a need and not meeting it. What good is it to see our Adelphoi, our spiritual siblings, to know that they need connection and to say to them, hey, man, good to see you. Great weather. How about them jets? Go, keep warm and well fed. What good is that? We talk about the big game over bagels right out there. But do we invite our Delphoi over to, to be with us to watch it? You could come up with a thousand examples of how we talk about it and yet don't do it. So I want to get practical. I want to push a little bit deeper into this, these genuine spiritual relationships. And how do we craft a spiritual family that's going to meet our need for connection as well as many around us who are alone in this world. So James chapter 3, verse 13. James chapter 3. This is kind of the theological foundation here. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So it really comes down to humility versus selfishness. He talks about this demonic earthly wisdom that's rooted in selfishness. And I think, you know, the demons know that we need community. And as enemies of God, they work overtime trying to poison and derail our efforts. They encourage 
pride and foolishness and selfish ambition. Then we have this heavenly wisdom, which is rooted in humility. Not of virtue in the ancient world, but so powerful for us today. He, told, he says it's pure and it's considerate and it's submissive. How? It's sincere. See, our actions will flow from a change of heart. That's the only way to get to where you're going. You can fake it for a while, but ultimately you need a change of heart for this to become an ongoing practice of value. You need to have a change of heart. And that means the death of self, self-centeredness and selfishness, and have a powerful humility growing in our souls. And that's going to come through repentance and then the practice of humility. So how do you actually practice humility and rip out selfishness? Well, it's really straightforward, and you already know this. We do it by giving of our time. Elsewhere in this letter, we're encouraged to submit our plans and the use of our time to God. He's largely telling us that we need to reorder our priorities. We need to spend our minutes with godly wisdom that in humility will say that other people's needs ought to be our focus. And then we spend our minutes toward that end. You think about it. I mean, this is what Jesus did for us, right? You don't have, he, Jesus didn't have to sacrifice anything for us. Do, do we know that? Do we, do we understand that here? Do we real like this wasn't this wasn't a, a, something that needed to happen in the cosmic order of things? We should just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus didn't need to do anything for us, but he chose the path of sacrifice in humility considering his own suffering and sacrifices worth it in order to fold us into his family. So are we willing to reorder our lives to do the same? Researchers tell us that we need 94 hours to become an acquaintance with someone. Then we need 164 to be friends. And if you want good friends, you've got to be ready to log 219 hours. No wonder most of us are disconnected from people around us. How many are willing to invest that kind of time to cultivate deep friendships? Then, past time, how do we practice it? With our money. Elsewhere in this letter, James warns the rich with frighteningly aggressive language. He says things like, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes and your gold and silver are corroded and that corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's brutal language. Just check it out later on. It's James chapter 5. He says, you've lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. Some of the most aggressive language in the use of wealth anywhere in the whole of the Bible. See, there are a few things in life that we cling to with more self-centered protectionism than we do our money. And when you come up to the scriptures, 
The, the reality is if you want to deepen Christian community, you, and if you want the cold, hard, uncomfortable truth, then you need to open up that clenched fist and let your resources that have been entrusted to you by God flow into other people's lives. You know, on a regular basis, we'll hear one of the small groups, will, there'll be a need in one of the groups, right? Somebody in their group, their car broke down or they're behind on a bill, and they'll pool their resources. They'll actually get their checkbooks out. They'll collect the cash. They'll pass the plate, and they will make sure that a need that is manifesting in their small group is met. We hear this stories, these stories throughout the years. I love hearing that because it's the Adelphoi using their money, investing their time to deepen spiritual community. And this for you, it might mean opening your home and spending money on, on entertaining people or taking people out on your dime, going on trips, paying for the needs that they have. Maybe they're struggling in something, they need some counseling, or there's, you know, there's a, something in their home that they can't fix, and so you come together and you help them repair it. Maybe they, you, you're going to hire out a, a painter for them or whatever it is, fix a, you know, a leaky boiler. And, and, you know, I mean, there's no end to what we can do. You can, I mean, think about the immensity of the needs that are out there, and we're only limited by our awareness of the need and our willingness to meet it. You take your time and you take your money. I know what you're thinking because, you know, I'm most, I talk with you guys all the time about all sorts of different things. And you're thinking, but I actually don't have enough time and money for the stuff I want to do now. And you're asking me to spend more of it? How is that even reasonable? It's impossible. If you knew my life, if you knew how busy I was, if you knew how much debt I was accumulating, you wouldn't ask this. Perhaps. Maybe you really are in that circumstance. But in my experience, personally and with many of you, that's not the reality. No matter how much time you have and no matter how much money you make, we, we fill every moment and we spend every dime no matter what our life circumstance is like. So where will you take the time and the money? Where will you take it back? What expenditures will you take back in order to make room for heavenly wisdom? Maybe it's hours at work or at leisure or whatever it is. I mean, how many wasted hours do we spend scanning social media or binge-watching the latest grade B TV series? How many of those hours can actually be turned back for Christian community. See, I think if James were here today, he would tell us that friendship without deeds is dead. Friendship without deeds is dead. So what will you actually do? What will you do this week? What will you do today toward that end? We already know the reality, reality of it. What will you do? Do, you re, do we repent of our selfishness? 
Do we ask God to cultivate humility? That's a great first step. Do you shave an hour or two from your busyness every week and invest it in taking a relationship deeper? Will you do that? See, everyone has a next step if we are willing to do it. Genuine Christian community is only going to happen when we sacrifice our time and our money for each other. Will you do it? I'm going to pray toward that. I'm going to ask the band to come up and get us ready to go to the Lord's table. But let's pray as uh, they're coming up. Father, what we need from you is an awareness of our own self-centered tendencies. We need to repent of that, Lord, and we do, even here and now. I do. It's so easy, Father, for me to, to just get into my own patterns and my own rhythms and to forget to invest in the things that really do matter and that I really do need. And I'm praying, Lord, that even here, through our time together, through the Lord's Supper here, that, that Father, we would just, we would call, it would cause our hearts to be softened toward you and toward each other, that the example of your investment, your sacrifice for us, Lord, would turn our hearts to you. And in that way, Lord, it would turn our hearts to each other. And that we would repent of our self-centeredness, that we would embrace humility, asking you to grow it in our hearts so that, Father, we could with joy give of our time and our money so that we might become the spiritual siblings, the Adelphoi, that you, Father, have already laid out for us. And we pray it all in your son's name. Amen.